Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm in the office of a new friend and I'm going to try pronouncing your name correctly but I'm going to ask you to correct it for me. Petros Yosifidis? Absolutely fantastic. Well, You're kidding. Yes. How many people who are not from Greece or surrounding areas get it even approximately right? Very few. Very few. Uh, you know, the, uh, in Greek, the yeah. I is pronounced as E. So it is Eosifidis, but most of the English pronounce me Eosifidis or something, which is kind <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of high fidelity or something. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> which is very nice of you to, to pronounce it correctly. Well done. Well, thank you. I know it, it, it's just I try to get these things right, and um, I've uh, you know I've read your work for many years. But we've only just met, so I've never really had the opportunity to sort out the right way of saying it. So anyway, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And we're, we're in your office here at City University, and you have the kind of prized sort of uh, downtown London office, uh, the corner office. You know, this is, uh, this is what you get if you're the CEO of some corporation. Right? Here <laughs> on the sixth floor of the building. No, come on. Um, it was Howard Tamba. Mm -hmm. who um, uh, was responsible for uh, uh, allocating rooms for this particular uh -huh. uh, for the staff of this particular department that was 10 years ago before he moved to journalism right. and when I told him I need a room with um, uh, when I can close the door yep. and then I have come I can have some privacy yep. and uh, he agreed to that so the as you can see this room and just opposite mm -hmm. the corridor so these rooms um, uh, you can close the door and nobody can see nobody you. can see you. it's yeah. not like you are doing something that you shouldn't <laughs> no 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 no, no. <laughs> but all, all, all the other uh, uh, rooms as you can see are very transparent yeah so yeah and secondly it is on the sixth floor, yep. which means not many students are coming in here. You don't get on everyday pedestrian traffic. That's correct. So <laughs> only students who need to see you actually come in here yeah. or uh, to see the sociology department. So we are very lucky in that mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. that, that's yeah. for sure. Wow. So, and you're actually in sociology, which is a pretty big department here, but what I guess I associate you with more is communications. So mm -hmm. maybe you could just start out by telling us how sociology and communications intersect, at least in your view and your part in them. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, we are in the part of sociology, but at the same time, media and communications are the, bigger, the biggest, the largest cluster by mm -hmm. far. Um, um, I don't know. I, I thought I think that city has got a reputation of this city university, a reputation of media and communication mm. courses. Mm. Um, you know, when I was a, a student at city, a postgraduate student, I attended this particular master's course that I now direct. Because you did your master's here and then your PhD at LSE? No, at what, University of Westminster. I'm sorry, Westminster, right, right. Another famous communications uh, field. That, that is a proper, me proper media and communication yeah. department. Yeah. But City, I mean, when I was in Greece, I, I had the choice of LSE that yeah. had accepted me yeah. and City, and then I decided to come to City. Um, I don't know why, perhaps because it was more reputable. In, yeah. in Greece, City University. Was it really? Then London School of Economics? Then London School of Economics. Wow! And in some sense it is even more reputable today in media and communications, don't get me wrong, in media yeah. and communications, yeah. postgraduate uh, education. Um, so, 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, we have got a, a very large media cohort in here. Yeah. Um, we do have other disciplines as independent sociology, such as criminology and race and ethnicity, etc. But media communication always been the largest uh, right. cohort, um, especially at the postgraduate level. Um, we do have about 200 students uh, in media out of uh, 280, I think, the whole cohort in the department, which is a large, but the media students are very, very large. Yeah, very large. And when you were living in Greece, what made you come to London and what got you interested in media work? To be honest with you, my family uh, is, uh, comes from a working class, so mm-hmm. they couldn't support me. So I decided to uh, apply for a scholarship from the Greek government, and that's how I managed to come in here. It right. was never my uh, dream to to come ab- abroad to, to study. So I thought, you know, after finishing a sociology degree from Pantheon University of Athens, right. then I would be a sociologist in, in Greece, teaching high school students, sociology to high school students, and that would be my career. But then I came in here with a scholarship and um, had the master's here at City, um, the PhD at the University of Westminster. And uh, then, you know, I was offered a job at the University of North London right. for three years and then this permanent job here at City. So to cut a long story, um, I, I think that, that was the main reason. I mean, the funding that I had from the Greek government. Yeah. And secondly, the uh, I, I like the... Uh, the environment in here, yeah, the, sure. the culture, um, yeah. the cosmopolitanism that uh, you would see in, in experience in London. When did you, when what year did you come to London? Nineteen ninety two. The reason I ask is that I last lived here when I was a teenager in the late nineteen seventies, and it didn't feel cosmopolitan mm. at all. And I think it's been a dramatic change, partly because of more Afro Caribbean and South Asian. Uh, population growth and also encrustation into everyday life, but also because of the European Union, um, sure. the increased migration and exchange, and the number of countries in the EU that have provided, you know, feeding grounds. Because I think I heard the other day that white people who were native English speakers are now a minority in London for the first time, and that just shows you what a change there's been so I think it is and you must have seen it even more in the last 20 years yeah absolutely yeah especially the master scores I mean we do have many more students from um, outside the EU whereas in the past it was not the case right but interestingly interestingly enough I was in a uh, in um, Portugal um, seven or eight years ago mm. and I had a woman you know she was having a store selling Um, uh, um, uh, some pro- t- t- tourist show, yeah. and then she said to a guy in there, "You speak perfect English, but you don't seem to be um, uh, f- from England." Yeah. Why? He he replied, "Because you are black." 
You cannot be English. You know, they, they have got a reputation in there that English people are still white. Yeah. So <laughs> even though, as you say, it's still cosmopolitan, it's become more cosmopolitan, still there are many prejudices. Uh, and, sure. so and there were, you know, thousands of black English speakers in this country and in London in the 18th century. It's just that I suppose we all labor with these mm. preconceptions and misconceptions, don't we? That's right. Um, now, to, to get on to the communications work more substantively, I'd love to go back to some of your earlier work, but I wonder if we could begin with your telling me what you think some of the big issues are today, whether we're talking about Greece or Britain or Western Europe or anywhere else. I mean, I see there in front of me Global Media and Communication Policy by you, uh, a book from Palgrave, another one from Palgrave, Public Television in the Digital Era, Technological Challenges and New Strategies for Europe. You've published lots of articles and other books, but what now do you think are some of the key challenges? Thank you for promoting that. <laughs> <laughs> and I took no um, money for this, dear listener. <laughs> okay, I have to say that, yeah, my first... I, I believe in public service media. Not, mm. No, let me put that right. I believe in public service content that is coming out from any medium. can be private can be public, but I, I, I believe that most of the public service content uh, is originated um, and communicated through public service media. That's why my first books were public service broadcasting, mm. then public service media, mm. then uh, because my PhD was on um, communication policy and the public interest, media ownership and the public interest, mm. I decided to take a more global approach. That's why I came up with this global media and communication policy. Now, that's done. I mean, uh, and there are two areas that I am investigating at the moment. Uh, the, the first one I try to to get away from it all in a sense and, and uh, be involved in a subject that fascinates me, really fascinates me, which is media and sport, especially television and sport. You've got a new book coming out or it, out on that? That's, how do you know all this? You've been spying on me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have field agents, yeah. <laughs> none of whom know one another's identities. It's right. a cell structure and they just report back to me on a need-to-know right. basis. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a co-author book that's coming right. out um, in a couple of months' time by Paul Grave. But to go back to what you said earlier on, I think that the new sparkling uh, issue, uh, a trendy subject, a sexy topic, is social media uh, yeah. today. Uh, of course, it's been with us for about eight to ten years, but it hasn't been investigated thoroughly. So uh, my next project, which is just, just starting with um, Professor Mark Wheeler from uh, Metropolitan University, is uh, policy issues regarding social media. Mm. I think there are many policy and regulatory issues that are related to these new uh, media, social media. And uh, that is something that I would very much like to, uh, to be involved with. Well, so I'd like to get back to the sports stuff in a minute, but mm. let's talk about, if we could, this unfolding project that's so new. What, what do you think are some of the policy issues to do with social media? Privacy, first and foremost, yeah. the issue of um, you know uh, people uh, revealing uh, and communicating personal stuff on um, uh, the internet, on the web, on, through social media, and perhaps this would violate some personal uh, yeah. personal uh, rights. 
freedom of communication, whether the social media actually provide this forum for more uh, uh, discussion, for more deliberation uh, in that the so-called network public sphere, because from the Habermasian traditional public sphere we're now moving or have already moved to a network public sphere. And my question is whether this is actually the case, whether social media actually provide an enhanced public mm -hmm. sphere or whether this might be an empty letter there. And, um, you know, one article of mine that I would very much like to, to transform into, into a book at some point in the future is um, a comparison between um, social media well, it's the public sphere. It is whether the public service media or the social networks better best uh, contribute mm. to the public sphere. Which of the two? It is an article that I published in January 2011 in Information Communication Society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would very much like to elaborate it further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, because I'm a bit skeptical about the um, uh, potential of this new network public sphere to do two things. Firstly, to contribute towards democracy, however you define democracy. And secondly, to uh, make people protest, to go out to the street and um, um, actually um, um, communicate with other people, create small groups to, um, to, to, to initiate change. To make their points. Now, I, I can't help but ask you as a Greek about this because on the one hand, the Athenian model, in a classical sense, is forever invoked as the locus classicus of democracy. And certainly in the United States, where I've been living for the last 20 years, their notion of what they see as their foundational ethos is in part the possibility of the small town replicating the direct democracy virtues and models that are associated with classical Greek philosophy and also mm. politics. Now, with the horrendous economic crisis that Greece has been facing for some time, we're seeing a street-based form of democracy, at least some of the time, or so it would appear to an outsider. Sure. And I've always felt that it, as a modern Greek, it must be very difficult to deal with the fact that you go for, at one level, your heritage is the model for everybody. At another level, the country gets forgotten, excluded, isolated in many ways, other than when you know, it's part of something significant, like in the Second World War, during the dictatorship, during the Cold War. Uh, and now suddenly it's thrust into uh, central attention again. Mm. So I'm just wondering about Greece's place in all this in terms of its history of democracy. Let's first say that the Greeks are very proud of their history and their culture. I mean, they brought democracy into the world, etc. Uh, but it's a mistake, I think, for Greeks to stay in the past. They have to move on and uh, see what they are doing today. And the issue of um, economic crisis um, that started three or four years ago might be very bad and devastating for, for Greeks, especially for my family, my dad, who the, the government cut the pension, my brother is unemployed, etc. But at the same time, something good may come out of this. Um, make people, the common Greeks, rethink about their place in the world, what they can do 
to uh, produce more. And uh, uh, I'm not talking about the economy. Greeks can come up with ideas. I mean, uh, um, not only stay in the past, what Aristotle or uh, uh, Plato um, uh, uh, communicated to the world, but come up with uh, some more mm. recent ideas and more um, uh, ideas about democracy, about more ideas about the economic crisis, how you can get out of this. We have got brilliant uh, brains in there. But unfortunately, most of those brains have moved abroad. And um, I'm not including myself in those great, great brains. But, and I came to the UK well before the economic crisis. But most of the, uh, of the people today um, who have got something to say, unfortunately, are somewhere else are well, away from Greece. One of the most acute commentators on the global financial crisis has been Yanis Varoufakis. Of course, I would yeah. say, for, uh, as an example. Mm -hmm. Just getting back to your family, if I could for a moment, because you invoked them again there, I'm assuming that for the working class, this has been even more devastating than the middle class. It is, because if you think that my dad is a pensioner of 700 euro per month, which is about 600 pounds per month, um, he's got his own house, um, he inherited that from his own dad anyway. It's common in Greece not to to move home and uh, um, have 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 the same. I mean, the the sense of um, uh, owning home is more um, apparent in Greece than in other countries, I suppose. Very high home ownership levels. Yes, yeah, that's oh, right. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, they're passed down through families rather than sold on the market. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, they don't do that. And um, yeah, if, if you think about my dad, I mean. He's a 700 um, euro per, per month pensioner. Yeah. Uh, lives together with my brother, who is younger than me. He's about 40 years old, and uh, he's unemployed at the moment. They, it's it's very difficult compared to other people who have got a decent salary of say 2,500 euro, 2,000 euro per month. Yeah. So yeah, if if you belong to the working class, it's much more difficult to to survive. And for your brother also, at that age, most countries you're going to find age discrimination mm -hmm. in hiring. Um, Actually, he came to the UK to try his luck, but because he stayed here for six months, we supported him. Uh, but you know, because as you say, he was away from work for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was a, a, a black point uh, mm -hmm. in, in his CV. Yeah. So he couldn't yeah. make a career here. It's it's awful, and I see it in even in things like universities. Uh, you don't hear it voiced, but people want to know why somebody who is forty or fifty mm -hmm. wants to start a new career, even as in the same university. You might have economists or sociologists or demographers saying yeah. down the hallway, everyone must retrain seven times in their <laughs> professional lives, right? right? Yeah. Uh, getting back to the, uh, the question of Greece as a crucible of democracy and the possibility of new invention, uh, we've also, of course, seen horrendous right-wing anti-democratic tendencies in Greece. Um, I'm not asking you to comment on all of that because... You're, you know, it's not your particular area of study, but I can't help be interested in the role of public service media versus the role of network media in Greece at the moment. Mm. 
described. There is the extreme um, uh, right-wing party called Golden Dawn in, in Greece. Many people, including myself, believe that the rise of this particular uh, party is because of the economic crisis. And they appeal to working class uh, people in there. They do uh, provide um, uh, food for and uh, other supplies for some people who are very poor. I mean, they organize such sort of events in central Athens or, or in other countries across Greece. And this, of course, helps to, to uh, their image. So it's not just ideological, they're actually providing services they, they that do. people need. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, but at the, at the same time, you know, this, this party is um, accused of being a Nazist mm. party, they're extremely right, right wing. I cannot be claimed to be an expert uh, of that, but I have seen some um, um, pictures of uh, how the uh, MPs of this particular party behave in the parliament and also in the street, and I do not approve that at all. I don't believe it's democratic, however you define democracy. Because, yeah. Well, I remember seeing a YouTube video, mm. I guess, of a television program mm. where one of them attacked a woman Throwing camera. a glass of water yeah. and also trying to, to hit, hit her. And yeah. then allegedly the police couldn't find him. He's a member of parliament. He, well, <laughs> of course they could find him. It's just that, you know, he was hiding for a couple of days, so he um, escaped the two-day um, interval from an incident that is happening until you go to jail. Uh -huh. So if more than two days pass, mm -hmm. then uh, you, can, uh, you can get into a regular trial. And now he's in a line to be tried but, you know, it's postponed, 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 <laughs> and I don't think that he will ever, it will be. ever happen. Mm -hmm. So, what about the situation now, during the crisis and so on? Excuse me, can I just... Oh, yeah, so thank you, Padre. Thank you very much. Okay. And this is for you. Thank you very much. Cheers. What about the situation now of Greek public service media? What, what is its situation as we speak? To be honest with you, there are no public service media in Greece. It's state television in Greece. Um, perhaps not. Definitely it's becoming better. I mean, the public service broadcasting or the state broadcaster, mm. ERT, is getting better in the sense that uh, politicians do not interfere in the programming directly anymore. But if you if you follow the news bulletin, the main news bulletin of 9 o'clock of the public service broadcaster or state broadcaster, as I want to, uh, as I prefer to, to term it, you can see that the, there is an obligation to provide statements of every particular party. I mean, this party said this or this particular issue, this party said that, the other party said that, this politician said this. So they have got an obligation to provide every possible point of view. And in the end, you come up with nothing. <laughs> so, so you do attend a, a news bulletin from there, and you learn nothing. It's only statements from parties, from political parties. You don't get analysis. Uh, th that's right. Yeah. No, com no commentary. Well, yeah. there is some commentary to, to be to be fair, but not as much as you can find in other uh, main private um, uh, commercial uh, channels. Uh, but. Uh, 
as I said before, I mean, the situation is not that bad as it was in the 1970s, 80s. Um, you know, Greek television developed uh, under dictatorship in Greece in the 1960s and early 70s. And even though after that we have got democracy, still some signs of uh, politicians interfering directly mm. in the uh, content of the program, you can still find that even today. Now, can I ask you, for listeners who are not in our field, to explain the difference between, say, the terms we were using, you were using public service media as opposed to state media. Right. State media or state broadcaster is a broadcaster or medium that is very close to the government. It's the, the so-called clientelism uh, system uh, in, in which you have to um, provide uh, to communicate to the public the um, uh, the, the, the statement of the government. So you are very close to the government, and you have favorable coverage of the of the government of the right, day. Right. So public service broadcaster is truly independent. That independence uh, is political independence, but also economic independence. Like for example, the BBC in the UK, um, it is politically independent, commercially independent. It's not funded directly by the government. Uh, it is funded by um, uh, by the public, by the license fee. And although the government determines the level of the license fee, that's it. I mean, the government is not interfering anymore. This is not the case uh, with the, uh, the Greek uh, broadcaster. So the main difference between a state and a public broadcaster, I would say, it's the level of political and economic independence. Independence. And uh, just getting back to Greece for a moment, what about the role of the so-called new media or social media that you were talking about? How important are they? And what are the main social media outlets that people are using as they mm. deal with the crisis? Can I first say that the, uh, not many Greeks are aware of these new technologies, new social media? Of course, people below uh, young younger generation yeah, mm -hmm. of course they are aware of that but uh, older people like my dad for example or some uh, some other relatives have got not very much interested in social media so if there's no wide availability of social media digital media personal media etc then of course they do not make much difference now in the current economic crisis they did make a difference but in what way in mobilizing people to get people on the street. They got on the street, they protested against these measures, they uh, sometimes violent uh, protests in there in Sidagma Square in Athens. Um, then this lasted for a couple of days, uh, a couple of years ago, then again repeated uh, uh, last year, but that was all. Now there's nothing in there, I mean there, there's no continuation, no, uh, yeah. nothing to take on from there and make it something more concrete, mm -hmm. something um, more, how can I put it, um, uh, so p people who went on the street to come up with something more, um, say for example, be forming groups together. So there was no institutionalization in a sense of the resistance that was expressed in Syntagma Square at those times. You put that right, right is it, yeah. Is it, this yes. is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, in other words, social media were contingent 
temporary tools used by people with a reasonable level of education or mm -hmm. access. Uh, yeah, but, uh, they've not institutionalized a new kind of politics and they've not really reached out to ordinary people, to working people. I don't think so. Yeah. No. It's um, interesting. M might be wrong because I have been away for a couple of decades now. But from what I hear from the, from my discussions I have with um, some friends in Greece, uh, I think this is the case. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's still an issue. So um, I want to get back to sport as the last, maybe towards the, the latter part of our conversation. But before we get on to that and, and your new book, um, let's talk a bit more, if we could, about more generally the claims made for mm. these social media. Um, you are obviously very skeptical, as it happens, I am too. But I'd love to hear about your skepticism. <laughs> okay. Right. We can do something together then. Yeah. Because we are both skeptical about social media. <laughs> it's a new subject, you know, it's a new field. Um, as I said before, it's a trendy field, sexy subject. Many of my students want to investigate this, mm. especially at postgraduate level. Do something, Petros, can I do something about social media? Yeah, of course, what do you want to do? I mean, I come from Thailand, I want to investigate whether people in Thailand use social media for, or in Russia for purposes that are uh, to, to democratize the country, etc. So, uh, yeah, I always say, of course you can do that, but you have to put down some parameters, some dimensions in there. Mm. What, what do you mean by social media? Do you mean the local um, uh, social media or the well-known ones, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc.? Um, some Chinese students, especially uh, doctoral students that I've got, um, they, um, it's quite, I am quite concerned uh, sometimes with their safety uh, in, in China because when they go back to do some field research, on, on this um, on this issue, they have to interview some politicians or high-profile people in there, and they have to be careful. It's a delicate matter in some countries like China, Russia. Uh, let's not talk about Iran or uh, some other countries. So um, there are many many issues uh, in social media that uh, you, you can consider today. Mm. And um, although I encourage my students to do research, to undertake research on that, uh, at the same time there are some concerns. Well, I have a definitional concern, which is I don't understand what anti-social or non-social media are. I can't think of a more social medium in the history of the world in terms of mm. bringing people together than television. All right. Uh, for example. Very good point. Very uh, good point. What is more me, social yeah. than something that envelops entire families by their hundreds of millions. Was it you in an article that said that, okay, social media are the new media, but television is anti-social? Was it you who wrote this? I, I don't know, but it's something I I've, I've I thought about. Remember, yeah. Maybe I stole the idea from whoever wrote that article, <laughs> but it's always my provocation yeah. that I find mm. uh, troubling. Um, no, that's a very good point. I believe that television is still the most influential medium. It's still the medium that brings people together. Uh, take, for example, the uh, ratings for the uh, main news bulletins uh, uh, in television channels. I mean, millions of people attend these and get information from there. And the next day, chat about these, uh, comment on uh, these news bulletins. So it's not social media, especially when it comes to 
40s, 50s, people in the 40s or 50s. It is still television. When I used to ask my students in California who were working class, normally first generation in college, and almost all minorities, where they got their news from in the sense that we would understand it, mm. news of politics, A, they were much more interested than I expected. B, they got it from two sources. One, the radio, because it was Southern California, so they were driving. Right. And they got it from National Public Radio, which is an, an amalgam for people who don't know it of, in a sense, public media and community radio. And B, they got it from Yahoo. Mm. So they weren't getting it from so-called new media right. uh, in the sense of social media. They were getting it from the web, but they were receiving it from very brief versions of essentially wire news. So what they were getting is a contemporary version of Reuters, Agence France Presse, mm -hmm. or any of the classic 19th century news organizations but filtered through Yahoo. You know, you made me ashamed now, Toby, because I didn't mention, you know, the traditional medium of radio, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And many people say that, you know, do research on television because it's more influential or considered to be more influential than radio. But if you think about radio, you know, driving, listening to that, listening to music mostly, okay, but mm -hmm. sometimes listening to news, to commentary, etc. So that's People getting up in the morning, they have a yeah. lot to do, it takes them a while to get out of bed, they've mm -hmm. got to shave or shower or whatever it is. They can't afford to be looking at anything. Sure. Um, well, let me move on then to another question, and then I really want to turn to sport. And this is the argument that says with deregulation, mm with the proliferation of both media and platforms, outlets and ownership, we don't need a publicly funded arm's length broadcasting model at all. Uh, it's easy to put your own messages up on YouTube. There's space on the spectrum for television or radio of all kinds. The technology is now cheap to make your own meanings. There are lots of different owners in many countries of television and radio who are targeting different consumer segments and hence the market regulates them. And hence, therefore, we should do away with, you know, fill in this gap, mm. whichever public media organization you care to name in whichever country. I don't think I'm caricaturing that position. I think that position really exists, certainly in the United States, but in other countries too, sort of neoliberal yeah. position. What's your take on that? Can I refer to the so-called cliché that <laughs> says that goes like this, the more media doesn't mean more choice for the public. Mm -hmm. More media doesn't mean more political pluralism, more cultural diversity for, for the public. Even though there might be different owners, and there are in, in, in countries, different media with different owners, most of these owners or controllers of the media share the same ideology which is the um, uh, capitalist ideology uh, these days. So you do, in my view at least, you do need to have um, a space, a uh, public space, where some discussion can be made, a rational and political discussion to go back to Habermas. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Can't leave the old boy the, out, the, the safe, The safest yeah, um, area. Uh, and this can be done only through public service media, in my view. Mm. Truly independent from the government of the day, from economic interests, from vested interests, etc. So even though we do have uh, many media outlets these days, 
I think that we do need uh, public service media for to provide this sort of um, uh, discussion, uh, a forum for people to be able to communicate. Um, and this can be done, as you said, through YouTube, through social media, through personal media, digital media. But I'm a bit skeptical about that for many reasons. I mean, if you want me, I can analyze them now. But um, uh, w one of them is the issue of uh, privacy. Another issue is the issue of censorship. Another issue is whether you be able to actually uh, communicate your ideas uh, through social media, for example, Twitter, that only allows 140 characters. What can you say in you know in such short messages there? Um, and um, the most important thing, I mean, I don't believe that the new social media contribute a lot to the creation of a so-called network public sphere. Um, uh, well, I put it a, a little bit dramatically there, but I am a bit skeptical about this. So to, to summarize, I think we still need some sort of public service medium yeah. uh, that provide the space, the forum for uh, some discussion that is non-commercial. Now, what about then in terms of journalism and particularly newspapers, mm. some changes in that direction. What about expanding public service media to say that because newspapers are in, in the first world now primarily consumed online and are suffering terribly in many cases because of the loss of advertising revenue, turning them into public service media? Newspapers um, have been hit very badly by the by the um, uh, the rights of the internet, but at the same time, they do have the opportunity for these online versions in there of, of the newspapers that almost all newspapers have got their online versions, but shouldn't be replicates of the printed version. They should do something more in order to be able to to survive and proliferate. Mm -hmm. And this something more is uh, to provide news briefings, uh, updated news, uh, mm -hmm. something extra for, for the public to uh, to be able to continue reading newspapers, even, even online. Um, I don't believe this statement, who came up with a book that in 2040 would be the last recycle of the Newspaper. Who followed that? I can't remember. I don't know. Okay, but 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 anyway, in order for newspapers to survive, I think that the online versions should have something extra, something mm. more, to to interest the public. Well, there's also the question of how we can fund things like investigative journalism. Mm. Uh, investigative journalism is <laughs> a bit difficult to, to define. What what do you mean by that? Some uh, scholars, uh, industrialists, academics, whatever, say, you know, I only need to learn the facts. I don't want anything else. I want the journalists to report the facts, and that's all. Others believe that journalists should come up with commentary, with personal opinion. But come on, Toby. I mean, if, if they come up with personal opinion, that means that they uh, uh, communicate their own personal ideology. All of us, they have got already formed you know, an idea of where we belong, we believe in something, and uh, if journalists, I mean, when they comment on particular events, mm -hmm. they do not comment objectively. Mm 
They come in subjectively. That's my my own view. So yeah, if you ask me, I do believe in investigative journalism, but at the same time, you know, this is a subjective issue. Sure. I guess the point about investigative journalism is that it means devoting a lot of time mm. to going in depth into a research topic and doing so in an area that is contumacious, that's extremely mm. controversial. So it combines the luxury of time that academic research can sometimes allow with the risk-taking sure. that journalism can allow. And the question is how that is sustainable. You know, 30 years ago, television stations in the United States had investigative journalists. Mm. And in some ways were almost expected to do so by licensing regimes. Right. Now, they're all gone, just like documentaries are gone from local television in the United States, and investigative journalists are thin on the ground to find within even the most established newspapers. So mm -hmm. I guess that's the point. I, I, I'm thinking, of course, about things being ideologically driven and the complexity of that, but also about the whole question of time for research and autonomy to be able to undertake it mm -hmm. in areas that are very, very controversial, conflictual. You know what I believe from, the, and this is experience I've got, I haven't done research on that, but experience I've got from my students, especially coming from Turkey uh, or other countries, they say that when they are journalists, they, when I uh, got into this particular newspaper company, nobody told me how to behave. I found out in the course of time, in one or two months, that this is what I am allowed to report and this is what I'm not allowed to report. And this came out through grapevine mm. uh, and also through uh, the issue of who the owner mm. of that particular uh, uh, newspaper company mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, I don't know, the issue of investigative journalism is very, very important, but at the same time, I'm quite skeptical on whether the journalists are really free to, uh, to to report whatever they yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, what is freedom in any absolute sense, of course. And the issue I said before about ideology. Yeah, mm. yeah. the things that uh, are always looking over our shoulder. Ted Hughes in his poem, The Thought Fox, talks about the thought fox that is mm. peering over our shoulder. Well, let's get on to sport. I can't help but think of this in the context of the great Athenian folly of 2004. Mm. Right. <laughs> a country of, what, 10 million people hosting the most expensive extravaganza in the history of global media events, namely the Summer Olympics. You put it quite rightly. <laughs> um, I think that uh, most of the economic problems of Greece started at that time. That, you know, we spend lots of money on um, uh, infrastructure for the Olympics, for venues that, because most of them are very close to where I live, to where my parents live, okay, in Greece, I mean, just 10 minutes by car. Mm -hmm. And when I visit Greece in the summertime, I go through these places and they're empty. Uh, they're not uh, used anymore. And that's a shame, really, for, 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 for Greeks. They invested all that money in there. Sorry to I'm back in five minutes. Okay, John. Yeah. 
So that, that was the first thing. I mean, they yeah. invested yeah. a lot on, in, mm. on infrastructure mm. and uh, they haven't taken advantage of that. Mm. And I just hope that English do not do the same mistake. And I, don't, I don't believe that they will do. I mean, uh, it seems that lessons of the past have been learned, so uh, these venues will be used. Let's see, don't hold your breath. <laughs> but anyway, it's a different story. I mean, England, yep. of course, is a big country. Greece, very, very small. We're so proud when in 2004 we got, uh, we won the um, European Football uh, Championship. Yep. I, uh, some months later, we hosted the Olympic Games. Next year, in 2005, we were winners of the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. So it was a brilliant time for Greeks. Everybody, euphoria everywhere. Everybody thought, yeah, that's Greece. I mean, we're coming at the, the top of the of the world. But unfortunately, uh, all the economic problems were hidden by the government, hidden by the government at that time. And uh, now we pay for that. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the sport book more generally, if we can. Uh, you have two co-authors, I think, is that right? Yeah, it's Tom Evans from um, Gond University in uh, Belgium and um, Paul Smith from De Montfort University in the UK. Mm -hmm. So um, both of them are football mad people, <laughs> <laughs> support different clubs. But, Which um, clubs do they like? Paul Smith uh, supports Arsenal, mm -hmm. um, Tom Evans uh, supports a Belgian I can't remember mm. which one. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I do support Liverpool uh -huh. uh, in England and Olympia Coast in, in Greece. Um, but that doesn't mind. Uh, that doesn't matter. I mean, we do have our differences about this. But <laughs> <laughs> we came up with a good proposal, I suppose, for the book. It's about uh, the political economy of sports rights. Um, so it is the economics of football, the escalation of sports rights, mm. why. Uh, they have um, been so expensive in the recent years um, and um, th this is provided by uh, Tom Evans. I am writing the social and cultural uh, value uh, of um, concentrating on the social and cultural value of sport that sport can connect, can, can provide the social glue, can connect people, can bring people together. Mm -hmm. For example, when you're an immigrant and go to another country, mm. if you belong to a sport group in a particular community, that makes you um, uh, get into that society, that group, more easily. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, um, uh, the Paul Smith uh, provides the policy and regulatory aspects of, of sport. That's the first part of the book. The second part has to do, uh, concentrates on case studies. And we focus on three European countries, many non-European countries like what is happening in America, Australia, Canada, India, Brazil, and other countries. So it's mm -hmm. truly an international Wonderful. project. And in the second part, did you focus in yourself individually on particular countries or issues? Yeah, on, on European countries. You, you were the European uh, I, guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, apart from the UK, that Paul Smith is more... Uh, knowledgeable, of course, as British, um, but the, the other guys here uh, focus on non-European countries. Mm. I wanted to do something about Greece, but it's a small country, so we thought wouldn't uh, fit 
as a case study very nicely into that book. Well, it's interesting, uh, given that Greece, again, is the cradle of <laughs> modern sport yeah. in its mythic origins. And uh, also, of course, participated as a host in this disaster, in a sense, as we must now think of it, sure. that we were mentioning before. So what, what are the key rights issues in Europe? Uh, to do with sport that uh, that you focus on, what are the and the key cultural issues? Uh, the I would when it comes to economic issues is the escalation of uh, uh, sports rights, mm. uh, television sports rights especially, mm. but also new media rights. Mm. When it comes to social and cultural issues that I am concentrating is um, uh, the role of sport in connecting people. How can sport provide, uh, contribute to the health issue, of course, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. make, taking people away from violence, from crimes, yep. and, and um, making more healthy and more participating into the community. The old uh, US Durkheimian saying being on the court being, means being out of court. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You play basketball, don't go to prison. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I investigate issues of race and ethnicity, mm -hmm. of course they are existing in sport and how can they be eliminated from there. Mm -hmm. So um, the issue of violence in sport of course, um, uh, issue of regulation in sport, policy from a European Union perspective but also national perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, these issues mostly we investigate in there. Mm. I remember Umberto Eco once writing mm -hmm. that media and sport meant that you were one removed from sport because you were into sports commentary. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, you were another removed from sport because you got into commentary about sports commentary. Right. But the media kept covering themselves, talking about sport. That's right, <laughs> yes. Um, but also, uh, I, I also use the famous... Um, um, statement by Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. who said that you know sport is one of the very few um, uh, programming genres or activities uh, if you do not watch that on television that cross barriers cross borders mm -hmm. so and connect people together so that's